thank the worship team with me and Kevin. Thank you guys. Like that honestly could be church this morning. I feel like we could go home. There's something about proclaiming those truths again and again and again and again that allows our hearts to just grab onto them in a different way. I so appreciate that this morning. And just the thoughtfulness of even the songs that they choose and the way that they lead us. I'm so grateful to, to have those guys lead us in worship this morning. Well, good morning. My name's Kyle. If you're joining us at home or at FH, welcome. I am so glad to open up the letter of James together. We're going to continue in our series on James. Today we're going to be in chapter 2. And if you uh, are kind of new or are just jumping in, one of the things we're doing as a church family over the next three months is we've committed to read the book of James together in the month of September, in the month of October, and in the month of November. And the idea is that at the end of this series, we'll have walked through the entire book kind of three times. And so I want to invite you to join us in that. If you've not yet had a chance to do it, October's right around the corner, and there's a great reading plan available on our website that breaks up some verses into each week. And one of the neat things is we have some space on that site for you to share uh, some of what you're learning and what you're observing. And, and one of the fun things for me has just been reading some of that and learning from one another as we've opened this text, what God is showing and what God is teaching. Uh, so check out the James Reading Plan page, watch on social for just some of your own observations and learnings from this book together. I feel like I should disclose this at the start. I have never really liked the letter of James. Like, I, I know how that sounds, and I know because I've talked to some of you that some of you share that with me. I don't know exactly what it is, but there's something about this letter that has always kind of rubbed me a little bit. I think at times it's felt a little legalistic or maybe overly focused on behavior, and there's something in me that kind of pushes against that. I think without the right context and in the wrong hands, some of James' words can be used like a weapon. And so I've heard some bad teaching on James in the past. But I share that for two reasons. One, this last month has truly been redemptive for me. I am seeing James in a totally different light and through a totally different lens than I ever have before. And so one of the things that I want to share with you this morning is just some of the language and some of the observations I've been making that have kind of reframed this book for me in case you, you've been in a similar boat. But I also share that because this morning James is going to talk to us about bias. He's going to talk to us about partiality. And as I'm reading these words, I realize that it applied to me in more ways than one. That even the, the text and kind of the letter, I, I found there's a little bit of bias in me. As a reminder, James, he's the half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing this letter to the first followers of Jesus. These first followers of Jesus were most, mostly Jewish converts, and, and as such, they understood God through a lens of law, and so it makes sense, some of the appeals that James makes, some of the ways that he addresses them. But we see over and over in this letter this. James is over and over hammering this point home. Our faith in Jesus it is meant to change everything about us. What we believe about Jesus is not just meant to change how we think. It is actually meant to change everything about us. And as we open chapter 2, we're going to see some of the inconsistencies between what these first followers of Jesus professed to believe and how they were acting and treating one another. And James draws them to the surface. He, he points it out and he invites them into something different. So as we read this morning, I want to invite you to consider the text in two ways. The first way, what does it mean for you personally? What is God saying to you through James' letter this morning? How does it apply? What's the take home? 
but also as a community of faith together, what do James' words mean for us collectively? And what might he be inviting us into? If you brought your Bible or maybe your ESV scripture journal, you can open to James chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? First notice the language that James uses. He says, my brothers. I'm sure he meant my sisters too. I mean, this is part of what I mean uh, when I say that I'm seeing James through a different lens. He's about to say some things that are challenging, some things that are difficult to hear. But he does so with the posture of a shepherd. Instead of from a position of authority rebuking, he places himself alongside, together, with. And he says, my brothers. I think it's really significant to understand the tone and the posture that James is using. Because it frames how we view and how we receive his words. And if we see James as harsh, we see him as condescending, we see him as overly concerned with behavior or law, it might be tempting to dismiss some of what he says. And guys, this is what bias and this is what partiality do. Even if they don't lead to obvious discrimination, even if they don't lead to kind of dismissal of a person, the words that that person says become less important. They become less significant to us. And the inverse is also true. When we see ourselves reflected with someone, when we, we find someone that we particularly like, I mean, this is some of the celebrity culture, the words that are said are more meaningful. We're already predisposed to agree with them. We weight them differently. So it's important to understand James' tone and posture. And, and what I'm seeing as I'm reading this, again, is just a guide for us with the heart of a pastor, the heart of a shepherd. I want you to look for that sort of language because it's how James addresses us this morning. And here he's reminding us that what we believe about Jesus must actually change something. It must change everything about us. We ought to look and act differently than the world around us. And James gives this very practical example. The situation James describes would have been so common in the surrounding culture and still is common to us today. The preferential treatment specifically here of someone of social status or wealth. So two people walk into their church gathering, one rich, one poor, the rich man given a seat of honor, and the poor man made to stand to the side or sit at the feet of others. Now on the surface, this might seem fairly obvious. I, I admit the first time I read the text, I was like, okay, so 35 minutes on that. Like that, that seems fairly straightforward. Don't, don't show favoritism. We shouldn't treat people differently that walk into the door of our church based on what they do for work or how they dress or how much they give or the color of their skin or what neighborhood that they live in. We should love everyone equally. We should treat them with no partiality. But James doesn't just make the statement and move on. In fact, he camps out here. He takes time to unpack it. He builds a case and a defense. Why? 
Why does James spend so much time hammering this point home? Why is James so concerned that they understand what he's saying about favoritism and why their gatherings ought to look differently? You know, James is writing this letter in a time filled with prejudice and with hatred based on class, ethnicity, nationality, and religious background. In this time, people were permanently labeled because they were Jew or Gentile, slave or free, rich or poor, Greek or barbarian. And these labels were permanently affixed. It wasn't a time in which someone could climb out of some of those social classes and definition. For these first followers of Jesus, the words that James is saying here were massively different than the culture around them. This was a huge shift in practice. This was countercultural in every way. And while some of the context has changed from the time James wrote this letter, it is hard to ignore how relevant and fitting James' words are still for us today. Remember his words in verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You and I make distinctions and judgments based on outward appearance every single day. That when we meet someone, we infer, we conclude, we assume all sorts of things about that person based on that initial reaction, based on that first moment. And if you doubt me on this, then I want you to really carefully imagine someone walking into the room right now. And just pay attention to what happens inside you as I, as I share this. Someone walks into the room right now with a bright red Make America Great Again hat. Or someone walks in with a Black Lives Matter shirt. Or someone refused to wear a mask in this building. Or refuses to take off their mask. Or begins dancing while we worship. Or is covered in tattoos and piercings. There are all sorts of assumptions and distinctions made based on that initial reaction. That first thought. And we do this in all sorts of ways. One of the things that I used to struggle with when I, when I first got into ministry, and if I'm totally honest, I still have these thoughts, is that when I got up on stage, people would not be as attentive, and they wouldn't listen uh, because of my age. That they would think things like, who is this kid, and, and what does he know? And I thought that because I've had similar thoughts. When I go to conferences or I hear people speak, I have all sorts of thoughts about, I mean, teach teachers and, and doctors that have taken care of my kids. And even age is one of those ways that we have a certain kind of bias or preference or, or partiality too. And I don't care who you are. All of us make distinctions among ourselves. It is human nature. It's part of what's wired in us. And it doesn't mean, I want to be careful, it doesn't mean that we always act that out. It doesn't mean that we always let those distinctions form judgments that affect the way that we relate with one another. But we have to acknowledge that they are there. We can't pretend that they aren't. The thing that allows us to see one another differently is relationship, right? Doesn't that change everything? That first glimpse, those first assumptions, they're changed when we enter into relationship with one another. But the other thing that changes is the redemptive work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He allows us to see one another differently. And James here, he's saying, hey, that thing inside you, that thing that is so common that everyone does that we all just kind of excuse as just normal and not that big of a deal. God wants to change that about you. He's concerned with it. It's important. It's worth paying attention to. 
And James isn't just writing to individuals. Remember, he's writing to a community of faith. And he saw the potential for all of these distractions and distinctions and judgments about one another to completely destroy their relationships and to destroy their witness to the rest of the world. This early church was meant to look different and be different, and here it's in jeopardy. James takes time to address this because he's helping them see that their faith in Jesus, it wasn't just for them. It wasn't just about changing their way of thinking. It wasn't just even about salvation. Their faith in Jesus was meant to be a gift, a gift to one another, a gift to the rest of the world. And as it was meant to change them personally, it was also meant to change all of their relationships with one another. And it was meant to be a testimony to those who did not yet believe. James continues in verse 5. He says, listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Notice again how James starts. Listen, my beloved brothers. And here James starts to build this case against favoritism and partiality. He makes this stunning statement that I want to zoom in on together. He says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? He takes the thing that's causing distinction, that's causing judgments in their midst, and he completely flips it upside down on its head. You know, I think we often think of being poor as a lack of material wealth. It's a lack of resources, maybe, lack of food and shelter and, and these sorts of things. But if we dig a little deeper below the surface, I think a better and more holistic definition of poverty, one that's a little bit more helpful to us, is broken relationships. Poverty at its core is broken relationships with God, with self, with others, with the rest of creation. And our faith in Jesus, it was meant to restore all of those broken relationships. And it was meant to use us to restore broken relationships in the world. You know, material wealth, it's only a part of the equation. All of us experience poverty in a multitude of ways. You know, a book that's helped shape this idea for me is When Helping Hurts. Uh, there's a diagram in the book that I think helps explain this concept, and we're going to throw it up here. But because of the fall, brokenness is manifest in all of our relationships at both the individual and the structural level. So individually, brokenness has affected my relationships with God, my relationships with self, my relationships with others, and the rest of creation. But also the brokenness in the world, it bears itself out in structural levels, on, in community, national, international. And not all of this is consequence of our sin. Some of this just is the fallenness of the world or, or consequence of sins of previous generations. But there are broken relationships in all of these places. And what James is helping us see is that the material poor 
can be rich in ways that we experience great poverty. His example is that the, the poor would be rich in faith. The material poor can experience can, and can be rich in ways that we experience great poverty. This sort of understanding, doesn't it give us a different sort of posture as we enter into situations with humility, recognizing that we also are poor, that we also suffer broken relationships with God, self, others, and creation. So what does this look like? I, I think it means when we spend time with our church partners in Ethiopia, we realize that there are things we need to learn from them. Not just ways that we can help. There's this richness of relationship with one another that is so true of the church we partner with in Lake Ukeda. Their church community is something so special. The way they care for orphans. And that church is rich in faith. God is using, uh, in quotations, their little church in really, really big ways. And there are things that we have to learn from the ways that they're following Jesus. Now, similarly, when we serve, like many of you will do next week at CityServe, we recognize that every person that we meet has something to teach us and something to show us. We are in need, even as we have access to material resources that others don't. One way that we avoid showing favoritism, one way that we avoid showing partiality with one another is by recognizing that even the least among us by the world's standards of material wealth has incredible wealth to share. Let that sink in for just a minute. You know, James makes this turn in verse 8. And he tells us that the thing that we ought to do is to love our neighbor. I love, it's, very, it's interesting to me. He, James doesn't just say stop it. His instruction is not just stop showing favoritism, stop making distinctions, stop judging each other. The recipe is not just stopping something, it's doing something. There's a little bit of a theme in James, right? But the thing they are to do is to love their neighbor. So what does it look like? What does it mean to love our neighbor in this moment in time? Because truthfully, this is one of the most polarizing times that, I, that I've ever lived in. There's all sorts of positions and postures. And we believe the lie, I think the lie that the enemy wants us to believe, is that to be in relationship well with one another, we all have to agree. We all have to have the same position and the same posture. And I demand that you agree with me about these things. And then I can be in relationship and I can love you. That is not the call. Loving your neighbor means showing grace. In a time where everyone is frustrated, it means acting with compassion. It means looking out for their well-being. It means speaking kindly. It means serving one another. It means making allowances for their humanity. It means sharing in joys and in sorrows. It means forgiveness. And this is the call, to love our neighbor regardless of what they believe, regardless of what position and posture they hold, regardless of what your assumptions are about them. This is the royal law. This is the work of the kingdom. And this is the kingdom. It's bringing flourishing and life as God intends to every place that we live, work, and play. And the kingdom is a place that is absent of this sort of favoritism and partiality. 
James concludes this, this section in verse 9 by saying, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those are, who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James' example here, it's, it's almost a little bit silly, Right? He says, if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Like a, that's kind of a duh moment, right? Like, we would all agree that if someone murdered, they had become a transgressor of the law. But he could have just as easily said this, if you don't murder, but do show favoritism and partiality, you've become a transgressor of the law. It's as if James is saying, listen, if all of that before is not reason enough for you, then let me give you another reason. If you show partiality, you're guilty of violating all of God's law. Remember, these first followers of Jesus, they were approaching their new faith in Christ through a lens of Judaism. And so to them, the law was built into everything that they believed and everything that they did. And so you can bet this, this landed with his audience. You know, James is anticipating that some of them might feel like this instruction is not all that important. They might dismiss it as no big deal. So he appeals to this view of law by making the argument that just one violation violates the whole thing. But doesn't this land for us today? I mean, we tend to focus on big sins and how well, uh, how we feel like we're doing. We weigh how we feel like we're doing based on uh, what we've kept and what we've avoided. We excuse, we shrug off these little things. It's no big deal. James is saying it matters. It's important. Then he uses this phrase that I think is so fascinating. He says, so speak and so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. Isn't that a weird kind of phrase? Just the way that he uses it. The law of liberty. The law of freedom. James takes these two contradictory terms, law and freedom, and he puts them together. Now, the gospel, it's the good news that the law is perfectly fulfilled in Christ. The freedom, the liberty that we have as believers is because of how he has fulfilled the law in every sense. That's what the law of liberty means. By using these together, he's helping them see that it's an entirely new way of looking at the law, and it's an entirely new way of looking at liberty and freedom. Completely different. And they work together, and both are true. So what do we do with James' words this morning? I think there's two ways that we can apply and consider the words that we hear. The first is personally. Let us be honest for a minute. Partiality is something true in my life. It is true in yours. This is a timeless, relevant, practical challenge of our faith. 
and one that deserves examining and for many of us, repentance. We also need to recognize that James is writing this letter very intentionally to a community of faith, to a group of believers. If we allow our faith in Jesus to change everything about us, then it will by necessity change all of our relationships and the ways that we interact with one another as well. And there's something so beautiful and compelling about a community of people that have been radically changed by Jesus. Something precious that ought to be treasured. But that sort of community, guys, it doesn't happen automatically. We don't just believe and, and that is true of us. It's something that it has to be fought for and worked at. And it deserves some individual repentance. James is calling attention to something that could completely derail and threaten that community. He's trying to help them understand that their faith in Jesus, it wasn't just for them. It was a gift to one another, and it was a gift to the rest of the world. This is something that God cares about. And so I need to, the invitation that I am following is I need to continue to invite him to expose and to reveal the ways that I view and treat people as less than others or with special preference because they are like me or I see myself in them, because they hold the same opinions or they hold the same positions or they have the same posture. And also, this community of faith, this church, has to look different than the rest of the world. Our faith in Jesus is going to change everything about us, and it's going to affect all of our relationships. Our relationships with God, our relationships with self, our relationships with one another, our relationships with the rest of creation. And as Jesus people, as kingdom people, God will invite us to restoring relationships outside of us as well. Those systemic sorts of problems. As people behold that change, as they experience the sort of community that is being described in here, it is a gift to the world. And it is a gift to one another. You know, when I graduated from college, I spent two years uh, in the Balkans in Serbia. And uh, it was an incredible experience. One of the things that was true, though, is I didn't get to pick who I went uh, over with. I was kind of randomly assigned uh, a group of people, people that said yes to this thing, but they were kind of from all over the United States. And so we, we showed up together at the kind of the first launch thing before we actually moved overseas, and I just was like, oh my gosh. Uh, the guys, particularly, were so different than me in every sort of way. I mean, personality, wiring, interest, everything. And I kind of had this moment like, oh, crud. <laughs> like, this is the people that I live with, that I work with, that I hang out and play with. Like, I'm, I'm moving overseas to a place where people don't even speak, like, I don't even speak Serbian, and this is my group of people, 24-7, no escape for a year, turned into two years. Those relationships were hard fought for. And honestly, it felt like at times the only thing that we had in common uh, was our relationship with God and our love for just the Serbian students that we met and that we spent time with. You know, these are guys that uh, we, I would have never been close friends with in any other context. They weren't guys I would have given preference to, weren't people I would have picked. But they were partners with me in every sense of the word in Serbia. 
And we did. We worked hard at our relationship because we had to. Like, there was no opting out. Like, that's what, that was the, the hand that I was dealt. So we enrolled in serving language lessons at the university there in Novi Sad, and we began to build relationships with college students that we met on campus. Um, those students would eventually begin to gather weekly in our apartment, and we did, uh, you know, these English camps. We did some different things each week, and uh, the students would learn English and, and learn about a relationship with Jesus. You know, we did all sorts of events on campus, and we shared our faith, and we did all these really fun and cool things uh, over those two years. But can I tell you time and time again what we heard from students? You guys seem to really love each other. We just love being part of your group. I've jokingly confessed that I think the most successful evangelism tool I had in my pocket those two years was the board game Settlers of Catan. Like we would just like have it open and people would show up with two liters of beer and and snacks and just want to play all night. It was relationship. You guys seem to really love each other. They could see how different we were. Like we were, like these, all of us. I mean, everyone's quirky. We're all quirky in different ways, but we were so different from each other. Because we, you guys seem to really love each other. We love coming over and being part of your group. There was something about our relationships and love for one another that created this sort of environment where they could show up and they could experience a similar sense of acceptance and belonging. One that eventually led several of them into a relationship with Jesus. Why does James talk so much about our relationships with one another? Why does he talk about what the church should look like? Why does he hammer this point home about bias and favoritism and showing preference and partiality? It's because their faith in Jesus wasn't just for them. It was a gift meant for one another. It was a gift meant for the world. And sometimes the miracle that people need to see to believe in Jesus is a community of people so transformed by him that their relationships look so different. A community that so loves and so accepts one another, regardless of position and posture and what they believe, that looks so different than the world that only Jesus could be at the center of it. That only Jesus could be the one who got the credit. And this is his invitation to us. And so may it be so. Will you pray with me? Father God, we confess that there are things in our life that need examining and repentance. God, give me the courage to follow where you lead, to be willing to hold and ask questions about places I show bias and partiality, would you change that thing about me? And God, as a community of faith, in a time that is so polarizing, would you knit us together? Would you show us how to love one another, not demanding that someone agree with us in all the ways? Would you give us the kind of grace that we need, the acceptance that we need, Would this be a church and a place where people could find that sort of acceptance and belonging? And would you get all the credit?